What you are receiving in your hands is a poem that I mentioned we would be talking about this morning. And the name of the poem is Jesus' Arrival in 50 Words. And it is a poem written by um, a lady named Dana Livesay. And I don't know anything about her except I think she's written a really thought-provoking piece here. I encountered this uh, poem in a video that I saw several years ago, and I'm not going to show you that video this evening, but I might share that to my Facebook page in the next few days so that you can check it out. There's plenty of space in the margins of this sheet where you can take notes if you'd like. Uh, you can jot some things down. There are pens in front of you uh, in where we... Uh, used to keep the attendance cards. There's little holes there with pens. You can grab one and take some notes if you would like. And once everybody receives uh, this sheet, I'm going to begin by reading this poem in its entirety. And it is only 50 words, so it's not going to take me very long. And we will spend the remainder of our time breaking this down, talking about each of these phrases together. We're calling our lesson tonight, Jesus' Arrival in 50 Words. God reached down, spirits touch. Virgin conceived, Joseph feared much. Angel said, don't be afraid. Joseph awoke, marriage vows made. Augustus decreed, Bethlehem bound. Joseph and Mary no room found. Word made flesh, born on straw. Angels hosanna, shepherds all. Cattle low as shepherds kneel. Mary ponders, God is real. And that's it. That's the story in just 50 words. And I want us to go bit by bit talking about each of these phrases together. I think this poem begins on the right note. It begins in the right way. It begins with this line, God reached down, spirits touch. And it is a reminder that these events that we read about uh, at the opening of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the arrival of Jesus Christ, is an act of God. It is God breaking into human history in a dramatic way, and it happens by means of His Spirit. We're going to flip to a few different places tonight, so I would invite you not only to have this sheet in front of you, but if you're able, have your Bible open. Look with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, as we look at a conversation that an angel of the Lord has with Mary, he announces to her that she would be the mother of the anointed one of the Messiah, and she says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? And Verse 35, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So this is unmistakably an act of God by means of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that would come upon Mary and bring about uh, the, the birth of this child. And we read in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this. 
He tells us the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. As we consider this poem, as we look at this event recorded in these Gospels, we need to be reminded this is not just about the birth of Jesus. We mentioned this morning that it seems the whole world gathers around the manger this time of year. And there is this sentimental, almost syrupy quality to the event that many people remember and think about. But this morning we talked about the, the powerful significance of this event. It's not just a cutesy story about a baby being born in a humble atmosphere. This is the arrival of the Christ. This is the enfleshment of God. This is the Almighty God taking on human form. This is, the bigger word for that is the incarnation. We learn from John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. He tells us about the arrival of Christ, not by giving us the narrative, but by putting it in theological terms. He says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you skip down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is an event that is worth considering. And it's an event that many people in our world consider this time of year. So, my question is, why shouldn't we? And I think most of us do, probably. But most of you know that there was a time in Churches of Christ where you didn't hear a whole lot about the birth of Christ around this time of year. In fact, some preachers would you know, totally avoid the subject. And that may be surprising to some of you who maybe weren't raised in the church that this was the case, but it was. And the reason was Christmas as a celebration of the birth of Christ was not explicitly laid out in the Scriptures, and therefore, you know, we didn't say much about it in church uh, around this time of year. But, you know, since the world is paying attention, and since as a result of that, our minds are drawn to the manger, I, I ask all of us, and including myself, why wouldn't we want to reflect on these events this time of year? I happen to think that it's kind of a good tradition. We have a lot of traditions uh, that we practice that are not explicitly in the Bible, but they're good. Uh, Sunday school is not something that is in the Bible, something that we should do every Lord's Day. And yet it's an excellent tradition in the way that it shapes our faith and grows our knowledge of God's Word. Four times of year, you know, we have what we call an all-in-one Sunday where we get together and we have worship and we share in a fellowship meal and we put an extra emphasis on inviting guests. That's a, that's a tradition, a good one. I think that considering the arrival of Jesus Christ and the birth story and all that goes with that this time of year, I think that is a pretty good tradition. It's an event that needs to be considered among people of faith. And I think that we'll see that as we go along. And why wouldn't we consider it during the time of year when everybody else seems to be? God reached down, spirits touch. Here's the next line. Virgin conceived, Joseph feared much. 
This line speaks of Jesus' earthly parents. Joseph, as many of you know, is connected or is of the lineage of David. And his family tree is shared with us by Luke in Luke chapter 3, where he traces Joseph's lineage all the way back through David, through Abraham, all the way back to the very first man, Adam. That's Joseph, and, and that's how Jesus is declared as one who is ascending from this bloodline because he's, he's connected through his earthly father. Mary, on the other hand, his mother. We don't know a whole lot about her. Uh, we don't know about her family of origin. We know that she was Jewish, of course. So we know that she's connected with this nation, but the specifics of that we, we're, we don't know a whole lot about. She's a virtual unknown in the Scriptures when she's introduced, and she's fairly unremarkable you know, in terms of her backstory and her background, but she does have remarkable faith. And she does have remarkable bravery. So maybe after all, she is a remarkable choice. But when I think about the parents, the earthly parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, I'm reminded that God is both fulfilling promises from the past, but He's charting a new course for the future. Jesus is connected to the past, to this Jewish lineage through Joseph, and yet in the, in the choice of Mary, this young woman that we don't know much about, God is showing us that God's kingdom will be available to all people. So, I think in the selection here, there is continuity with the past, but also discontinuity. God is doing something connected to the old, but He's also doing something that's brand new. We learn here that Mary is a virgin. And we saw that in the, a couple of the verses we looked at earlier from Luke and Matthew. This is a foundational conviction of our faith that there was a virgin birth. Uh, it, this belief made it into the earliest Christian creeds. And it's a reminder of Jesus, both His divinity and His, his humanity, that He was 100% God while simultaneously being 100% man. He was born of woman, yes, but born under miraculous circumstances also. And we learn from this line also that Joseph is afraid. Why is he afraid? We learn this from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to go back there. We learn this because the angel comes to him and says, hey, don't be afraid. But in verse 19, we read this. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The Scriptures tell us this after Mary turns up pregnant. And Joseph would have probably assumed that she had been unfaithful in their relationship. Not even they were supposed to have a sexual relationship at this time. They were betrothed, which would be considered by many in this culture to already be married in a sense, but the marriage had not yet been consummated in, in a sexual way. And so Joseph probably would have assumed that Mary has been with another man. And that would have been very sinful and scandalous. And, and according to the Jewish law, Mary deserved... I mean she would have faced the death penalty by stoning. But Joseph, 
wants to both maintain his righteousness, but he also extends compassion to Mary. He's not going to be the whistleblower here. He's not going to go out and blab that this is the case. He doesn't want to see her punished. And so what is he going to do? He's going to quietly break things off because he's afraid. He's afraid of the scandal that will soon ensue. Uh, He's afraid of what will become of his reputation. And so he decides, we're going to split. But what happens in the very next verse? Well, according to our poem, the next line, angel said, don't be afraid. Now there are angels all over this story, as you are well aware. The angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah. Now I'm going way back before the arrival of Jesus. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, it was an angel who had communicated to him about the special son that would be born to him and his wife, Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel, the same angel, spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1 to tell her that she would soon become pregnant with the Christ child. An angel appeared to shepherds to announce the Savior's birth in Luke chapter 2. And now we see that an angel has appeared to Joseph. I want to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, what we just talked about, Joseph is, is, is pondering what he ought to do now that he knows Mary is with child and they are not married. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's something that I didn't mention earlier, is that the virgin birth also fulfills an important Old Testament prophecy. So the angel here says to Joseph, do not be afraid, because this is all part of my plan. And the very next line, Joseph awoke, marriage vows made. Joseph's fears are stilled and his heart is put at rest and he carries through with the commitment that he had made to Mary. Matthew 1 verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, which is the biblical way of saying they did not engage in a sexual relationship until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph awoke, marriage vows made. The next line, Augustus decreed the emperor of the Roman Empire. Bethlehem bound. This line reminds us that God is using using earthly leaders and worldly events to bring about His purposes, which He has always done, and He continues to do in our day, often in ways that we do not understand until much later. We talked about one such way this morning in Bible class as we considered we were getting a little ahead of the text in Acts, but we started talking about how there came a time when the persecution became so great for the Christians in Jerusalem that they were expelled from the city, which must have been a very difficult experience for the earliest believers. 
And yet, what had Jesus said before he left this earth, before he ascended into heaven? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in the outer regions, Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And what did that most difficult experience create? An opportunity to preach the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. And so God used a very difficult situation that the earliest believers faced to advance his purposes, to do his will, which was to get the word out about Jesus to the known world at that time. God is all, always using earthly leaders. We see evidence of this in the Old Testament and new and worldly events to bring about his purposes. That's what he does here. And we read about it in Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1, which was our text. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this was a census. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Why are we getting all these details? Well, to show us that the story of Jesus is placed within the course of human history. You know, These are actual events. This is a true story. These are people that are attested to in history. These people actually existed. This is not just some make-believe tale. This happened in history. This man was the governor. This man was the emperor. Everybody went to be registered to his own town, verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. That was the city of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This fulfills a prophecy that was made in the book of Micah. In the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, the trip to Bethlehem, uh, which was ordered, uh, you know, they were just following the orders of the emperor here, but, and goodness, if I could ever find Micah, there he is. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, listen to this, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So they go back to Bethlehem by mandate of the Roman emperor, but God is working behind the scenes. God is orchestrating all these events so that his son can be born in the place that the prophet said he would be born in. The city of David, of, of David's family, long ago, many generations back, the city of Bethlehem. And we see that um, noted for us by the gospel writer Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> the next line, Joseph and Mary, no room found. Let's read verses 6 and 7 of Luke 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There was no place for them in that lodging house where travelers would stay for the night. And so they were in a place where the animals were kept. And that's where the Son of God was born. People have long recognized the irony here 
that there was no room for the Savior in the world that he himself had made? John really talks about this in an extremely sad way in John chapter 1, this idea that people didn't make room for Jesus, which was the case from the very beginning of his life. There was no room in the end. John says this in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And as we read those verses, and as we think about how the innkeeper turned Joseph and Mary away on that night, we are moved to ask ourselves the question, is there room in my life and in my heart for the Savior? I want to, unlike the innkeeper, make room for the Savior of the world. Is there, am I creating enough space in my own life for Jesus Christ? There was no room in the end. What a sad detail that is shared here in the story of Jesus' birth. The next line. Word made flesh, born on straw. This line, and this is what I love about poetry, is that it packs so much richness and meaning into just a few short words. This one line captures this mind-blowing mystery that the eternal God could be contained in a helpless infant. You know, you can spend the rest of your life considering that and never fully mind the depths of that truth. We ought to spend the rest of our lives considering that, and even if we did, we wouldn't fully grasp it. Let me share these words with you. This is from a devotional book written by Ken Geyer. This is kind of an imaginative account of Jesus' first moments. God is born. He chokes and coughs. Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat. Then the Son of the Most High God cries because he is hungry. So his mother Mary nurses him. The baby finishes and sighs. The divine word is reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. Then, for the first time, his eyes fix on his mother's deity straining to focus. The light of the world squinting. Tears pool in her eyes. She touches his tiny hand. And hands that once sculpted mountain ranges cling to her finger. She looks up at Joseph and through a watery veil, their souls touch. He crowds closer, cheek to cheek with his betrothed. Together they stare in awe at the baby Jesus, whose heavy eyelids begin to close. It has been a long journey, and the king is tired. And so, with barely a ripple of notice, God stepped into the warm lake of humanity. Without protocol and without pretension, where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious barn mice. 
Except for Joseph, there was no one to share Mary's pain or her joy. Yes, there were angels announcing the Savior's arrival, but only to a band of blue-collar shepherds. And yes, a magnificent star shone in the sky to mark his birthplace, but only a few foreigners bothered to look up and follow it. Thus, in the little town of Bethlehem, that one silent night, the royal birth of God's Son tiptoed quietly by as the world slept. Word made flesh, born on straw. And then the next line, angels, Hosanna, shepherds, all. More angels. An angel announces to the shepherds that the Christ, the Savior, has been born in the city of David. And then we read this, verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel, this angel who came and appeared to these shepherds, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And they worshiped at the scene. The next line, cattle low as shepherds kneel. Watch this, a very humble scene. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then the last line. Mary ponders, God is real. Mary ponders. We get this very interesting detail in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. And consider all that Mary has been through. The appearance of the angel and the miraculous conception and the, the nine months with the Christ child in her womb and the birth and all this. And the shepherds have come and verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And here we sit 2,000 plus years later. And we are pondering these very same things. And we ought to continue to ponder as long as there is breath in our lungs. We ought to continue to consider the significance of this grand event. It's what we're doing tonight. It's what I hope we will continue to do as we live. And then this last statement, God is real. Just three simple words and pretty Seems pretty straightforward here, but this is a loaded statement. Yes, God is real in the sense that He exists. Of course, we believe that He reigns from heaven and all that. But I think as these words come at the close of this particular poem, there's a deeper shade of meaning here. And it's this. At the incarnation, when God became flesh, God, can be heard and seen and felt unlike ever before in the history of mankind. There he is in human form as an infant. I think about the lines of that song that we sang this morning. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. 
Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Tonight, if you need God to be with you, if you need Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, and we all do, maybe we have someone here who has not named Him as their Savior, who has not taken Him on in baptism so that your sins can be washed away. We'd love for you to do that tonight. Or if anybody's struggling in any way and needs an extra prayer or two and a boost of encouragement from your church family, we want to invite you to come as well right now as we stand and sing.